Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 39 with me. As you turn there, just a heads up on a couple things. One, as I've already kind of mentioned, we're going to be dealing with some uh, mature themes today. And I think I'm going to share them in age-appropriate ways. I don't think I'll say anything that you can't uh, figure out a good way to talk about, again, in an age-appropriate way with, with your kids. But just want to give you a little bit of a heads up on that. And then also, uh, just kind of, again, we've talked about this already this morning, but encouragement. Uh, this, this may be a hard topic for you because you may have failed uh, in some of the areas we'll talk about this morning or been very close to someone who's, who's failed in some of these areas. And let me just go, go ahead and give away the, if, the ending. Uh, there are—all uh, all of us have struggled uh, to worship God rightly in the area of purity. And the— the ending, the, 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 the good news is that there's a Redeemer, right? A Redeemer who has completely forgiven us of all our sins, and God is gracious and offers forgiveness to all who call on Him for mercy. And so I want to give you that encouragement as we go through it and talk about some, some things that may uh, cause you some, some sorrow. And I'll just encourage there to be godly sorrow and you uh, grab onto your Redeemer as you think about his great grace in your life. Well, we're in Genesis 39, as I've said, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. And so if you're, you're able to, go ahead and stand with me. And if you need to sit while we're reading, feel free to do so. But we're going to stand in honor of God as we read his word together. We've been in Genesis 37 a few weeks ago, and then there's Genesis 38. We're not going to, to uh, read that this morning, but what you need to know is that Joseph in Genesis 37 is sold into slavery, then there's Genesis 38, and it talks about this immorality with uh, Judah and his daughter-in-law and this, the sin of his sons as well. And then we come to this story in Genesis 39, verse 1, picking up the story of Joseph again. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were the, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her and, until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning our great joy in you, a joy that comes as we pursue obedience to you in all areas as we worship you. We pray this morning for those who are serving you in in different capacities, in different places of the world. We think of our friends in, in, in another region that's just kind of a dangerous region right now, and it's been brought to mind this last week. We thank you for them and, and pray for our friends and, and uh, the, the people who live there and, and ask for continued faithfulness and trust in you. We, we think of those on the, the Mexico trip, ask for Dave and Beth as they lead that to have a great vision and, and great wisdom as they lead the team and that your, your, uh, your servants, the Horn Books, would be encouraged by their ministry as well. And uh, we think of those in Ecuador, Chuck, pray for uh, his, his trip there and that help that to, to go well as we, th- we think about our, our friends in Ecuador and, and their great needs. And uh, Lord, we think about our need in terms of righteousness. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We trust in him. We believe in him. We, we put our, our life in his hands by your grace. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When I was in, in high school and college, my friends and I often had some, some different ideas and beliefs about purity, morality, and, and immorality. And, and my friends knew that I had a different beliefs. My friends knew that I wasn't a, a perfect person, but they knew that I was a, a person who was wanting to live my life and honor God in, in all areas of, of life, or at least, was, again, was striving to do that. And so we'd often talk about situations they were in, and, and I'd try to share the gospel at times with, with some of them. And as, as we talked about morality, and they knew that our beliefs were different, and they'd have questions and want to talk through some things, there'd be one question that would kind of begin the conversation, or at least begin kind of a different phase of the conversation. And the question would essentially be, what gives you the right to tell me how I should live? You know, what gives you the right to tell me that I should 
treat my body in whatever, or shouldn't treat my body in whatever way that I desire? What gives you the right to say how I should relate to my girlfriend? I mean, what, what gives you that authority? Why do you think you have the right to, to share those things? And then kind of the related question is, I, you know, I say, well, here's what I believe that God teaches, and here's why I believe that God teaches that. The follow-up question, of course, would be, well, why? Okay, you're saying I should do this, and you're saying this is, this is what God says to do, but why does God care? Why does God care how I use my body? What, what, why? What, what's the point? And honestly, I don't think I always had a, a great answer to that. I think sometimes I, I failed to, to figure out the, the why question. And I want us to, to think about that this morning. Why does God want us to live in, in a certain way? Why does God want us to pursue morality? And, and really, there, there's two fundamental questions, I suppose, as we think about this from a, the perspective of a Christian. First of all, how? How are we to live in the way that God has called us to live? How are we to pursue morality the way that he's called us to pursue it? And, and then the more fundamental question, of course, would be the why. What's the point? Why does God want us to live this way? And, and that's what I want to wrestle with you uh, together this morning as we look at this passage. And as we look at this passage, as we look at Genesis 39, what I, I hope you see is that purity is really about worship. Purity is, is really about worship. And it's only possible because of God's presence with us. Purity is really about the gospel and worship. And it's only possible because of God's presence with us. That's what I want to kind of think through with you this morning. And this text is going to help us see that. You said, well, Daniel, hold on. How is this text, Genesis 39, how is this text going to teach us about purity and worship and those things? Well, let me, let me give you a kind of a, a big picture of the Pentateuch, and then we're going to put Genesis 39 where it falls here in the Pentateuch. So, so big picture, what does the Pentateuch teach us about sexuality? Well, it begins with God creating sexuality. In Genesis chapter 1, he creates us male and female, and, and he, he creates this, this one covenant, this one flesh relationship in which a, a man and a woman covenant together, and he calls them to be fruitful and, and multiply. And God looks at this relationship that is also sexual, this one flesh covenant relationship, and, and what does he call it? He calls it good he calls it a, a good relationship, and that's what God creates. And that's kind of a foundational principle that we see in the book of Genesis. And what we also see as we go through Genesis and we go through the Pentateuch, that any violation of that covenant relationship is wrong. It's a deviation from what God has intended, and God calls us to avoid those things. He calls his people to avoid those things. Adultery is a violation of this covenant relationship. You, you cannot commit adultery, shall not commit adultery, God tells his people. So he creates this relationship that he calls us to participate in, this one covenant relationship. Any deviation from that relationship is, is wrong, and so he'll talk in the law about 
uh, all sorts of deviations from that, homosexuality, other, some other devious practices, sex outside the covenant relationships, uh, seducing a person, rape. All these things are violations of this, this covenant relationship that God has created for us to enjoy. And the, the kind of a third thing that we see in the Pentateuch as we go through it is that all of this is rooted in worship. All of this is rooted in, in worship of God. Purity is ultimately about worship. So, for example, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18, God is talking about sexuality and, and different deviations from what he's called his people to do. And, and listen to what he says in, in the first five verses. Leviticus 18. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So what is God saying there? He's saying, look, I, I took you out of a place, out of Egypt, and I don't want you to follow their sexual practices. And I'm taking you to a new place, the land of Canaan, and I don't want you to follow their practices. I don't want you to engage in sexuality as, as they do. Uh, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. And so I want you to live in accordance with who I am. I want you to exercise your sexuality according to the statutes and the rules that I've given you. And ultimately, it's about knowing who I am, knowing who I am as Yahweh God, loving me and walking in obedience to me. Purity is about worship. Leviticus 20, you shall be holy to me. Again, this is in a context dealing with sexuality and God's call on how they're to live in their in their sexuality, you shall be holy to me, for I am, I am the Lord, I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Okay, so that's, that's the big picture of the Pentateuch. As we think about sexuality and, and immorality in the Pentateuch, God has created this one flesh covenant relationship. Any deviation from that is a violation of what God has designed sexuality to be. And ultimately, sexuality is about worship. He says you're to be holy like I'm holy. As you're faithful to one another, it's really a picture of worship of me. And just as other People worship other idols and engage in sexuality in different ways. Don't, don't be like them. Worship me. Now that brings us to Joseph. Genesis 37, what do, we, what do we see? We saw that Joseph is a picture of the Redeemer. That Moses has given us the story of Joseph to show the people as they get ready to enter the promised land, to show them a picture of this, this future Redeemer. It's then in Acts 7. Now, that's... Genesis 37, Genesis 39 is where we are, and then in Genesis 39 through the end of the book of Genesis, we're talking about Joseph. But in between Genesis 37 and 39 is Genesis 38. And if you're reading through the story of Joseph, you come to 37, he's sold into slavery, and, and then you come to 38, and you're like, now why in the world is there this story of Judah and his sons and his daughter-in-law and this the story of immorality why is it there why put it there why mention it at all and what i believe as we look at the text we're going to talk more about this as we go on is that genesis 38 and judah's 
separation from God and this immorality that he engages in through, through self-worship, the selfishness, is designed to serve as a, a contrast with Joseph and his worship of God and his, his faithfulness in his morality, his purity. So Judah and Joseph are really serving as kind of uh, uh, juxtapositions of one another. In Genesis 38, you have sexual immorality, and, it, and it's sexual immorality motivated by worship of self. And then comes chapter 39, and it's a stark contrast here. The purity of the one who's going to redeem his family, and the purity in Joseph's life is due to the presence of God with him. It's a picture of the ultimate redeemer. We'll continue talking about that as we go on. But again, the main thing I want you to grasp as we go through this chapter is that purity is ultimately about worship. It's ultimately about worship, and it's only possible because of God's presence with us. So let's talk about four truths here related to that, about purity and immorality and how we pursue purity and why. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Purity is a picture of faithful worship of God. Purity is a picture of faithful worship of God. You come to here to Genesis 38, and again, we have to understand that Genesis 38, or Genesis 39 is coming right after Genesis 38, the story of Judah and his failures, and now we have the story of Joseph and his success. And Joseph's success is based upon the presence of God with him. Throughout this entire chapter, I want you to notice how many times we see Moses tell us that God was with him. Joseph is bought by Potiphar, this officer of Pharaoh. He's, he's an Egyptian, and he, he purchases him. And verse 2 tells us the Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph becomes successful. And somehow, we're not exactly sure how the, the master realizes this, but the master realizes that it's God's presence with Joseph that causes him to be successful. The Lord caused all that he does to succeed. This is verse 3. And so he puts Joseph in, in charge of all that he has. So God is with Joseph, and Joseph comes in the presence of Potiphar, and he's successful. Now, sometimes as people talk about Joseph, they kind of talk, well, Joseph must have been this incredibly intelligent person, or maybe he was just an incredible executive, or maybe he had administrative capabilities far beyond the average person, and and maybe those things are true. But as we read the text, what does the author continue to point to as the, the root of Joseph's success? It's God's presence with him. And Potiphar, as, as he looks at Joseph's success, he somehow realizes that it's God's presence with Joseph that allows the things that Joseph is doing to be successful. In other words, Joseph, just like Jacob whenever he was with Laban, Joseph's presence with a, with a Gentile, Joseph's presence in Potiphar's house is kind of a taste of the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. His seed is being a blessing to the nations. The the nations are being blessed through this this picture of a redeemer. Joseph's faithful. And ultimately it's because he's with God. He's worshiping God. We're going to continue to to see that as we go through the the text. But let, let let me just point out how we see this elsewhere in Scripture. As we look at Scripture, we see that immorality is ultimately a decision to not worship God, to not be like the God who is holy. The sexually immoral person makes a decision to worship themselves. And that's why in Scripture, as as we look at idolatry, idolatry is often used 
as, as kind of a, a picture of immorality, or maybe the other way around is better to, to put it. Immorality is, is often used as a picture of idolatry, of failing to worship God. So, for example, Hosea 4.12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. He's talking there about idolatry, right? Their walking staff gives them oracles. And then, listen to what he says, listen to the sexual language he uses here. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. This adulterous, this adulterous picture is a picture of a person who's pursuing other gods. A one covenant relationship is supposed to be a picture of faithful worship of God. And failure to engage in sexuality as God has called you to engage in it is, is a picture of idolatry. It's self-worship. Jeremiah 2, uh, 23 through 25 says the same thing. And the blessing here, the blessing is that people can see what life and relationship with God looks like. Potiphar can look at Joseph and see what a relationship with God looks like. And here's what we need to understand. God's call to be faithful in the area of purity is ultimately a call to worship. Cain discovered that you don't get to just worship God any way you desire. Israel, as we're going to go through the Pentateuch, we, we see that God calls them to worship him in a very specific way. And what we also see in Scripture is that, that sexuality is designed by God. And just as we can't worship in any way that we desire, we can't just use our sexuality in any way that we desire. I was reading an article this, this past week in the Huffington Post. It was from some months or years ago. And it advocated freedom. It advocated, this article advocated freedom as kind of the foundational principle upon which to build your sexual ethics. There has to be some sort of foundational principle. You say, okay, this is the, this is the principle, this is the bedrock principle, and I'm going to say this is my, my foundational principle, and now I'm going to build all my other principles upon this foundational principle. And this article, as it was talking about sexuality and immorality and, and purity, it says, okay, the, the foundational principle, what we all need to agree on is the, the, the bedrock of, upon which we build sexual ethics. That foundational principle needs to be freedom. I need to be free to do whatever it is I desire to do. And so this person was talking very favorably about many deviations from what God would call us to do with sexuality, adultery, transgender, uh, pornography, the adult industry, prostitution, all, all sorts of things. In fact, she called herself an expert on marriage, and yet she foresaw a future, this author did, she foresaw a future whenever marriage wouldn't be based upon this one-time covenant commitment. But she said, in the future, I think, the wiser course of action will be, to, based upon this bedrock principle of freedom, the wiser course of action will be to have kind of a series of ongoing commitments. So I agree to be in this relationship for now, but we'll renegotiate in a few years, and we'll have some new principles upon which we decide to do this marriage. And then a few years later, we'll do something else, right? How do we respond? How do you and I respond to this brave new world of, of sexuality in which we have found ourselves? Our temptation can be to freak out. Our temptation can be to, be, uh, to respond with, with great fear, especially maybe those of us who are parents of, of younger kids and think, okay, this is what their future holds and how am I going to handle this and what am I going to do if, if they begin to believe some of these things? I, I don't know. Let me suggest to you that it begins, it begins with this first principle, helping our children, helping ourselves, helping those we love see that, look, purity isn't first and foremost about the dangers. We'll talk about the dangers. We'll talk about why it's wrong. But ultimately, we give our children 
a picture of, of the beauty of obedience. Look, uh, son, daughter, self. God has given us sexuality. He's called it good. And by his grace, we can enter into a relationship, if he allows that, and even if he does in our singleness, by which we glorify God with, with this part of who we are. God has given us the opportunity to pursue him at something very foundational to our core to, to show him how much we love him, to pursue him in worship. See, we paint the, the beauty of the picture of obedience to our children and ourselves first. You know, with, with my kids, uh, we're going through this book my, with my two older kids, a, a book uh, called the, the Grand Design. The Grand Design. And it's, it's kind of a theological description of biblical manhood and, and womanhood. And, and the purpose of that is so that I, they, I can paint my kids, instead of saying, don't do this and don't do this and this is wrong and this is wrong, although I will do that whenever necessary. But I, would, I just want to first say, look, this is, this is the beauty of what God calls you to. This is the design for which he's created you. Let's talk about the beauty first. And what we see first is that purity is a picture of faithful worship of God. And you and I, because God has given us sexuality, have the ability to pursue God in worship in that area. Here's the second thing I want us to think about. That's purity. Let's talk a little bit about immorality. Immorality is a a foolish rejection of joy in worship. See, it's not just wrong. It's not just wrong because God says it's wrong. It's actually, the pursuit of immorality is actually incredibly foolish. And because our, our minds are sometimes deceived by the world, by sin, by ourselves, we don't grasp this. But in reality, immorality is a foolish rejection of the joy God offers us in worship. And listen to what happens next in the story. It says, again, at the end of verse 6, it talks about how handsome Joseph is. And, and those of us who struggle with being very handsome understand this well, right? It says, it says in verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast his eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me here. Her words are are short, direct, to the point in Hebrews is just just two words translated here, lie with me. There's no mistaking her intent or her directness. And it says in verse 8, but he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put me in charge of everything. He's not greater than I am in the house. He hasn't kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, it's going to be different. I'm joking, of course, about the handsome thing, but all of us are going to have different areas in which we struggle. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and, and this, is, this is his test. Joseph responds... In several ways. First of all, he says, look, this would be a relational, this would be a violation of my relationship with my master. I have a relational obligation and this would be a violation of that. Secondly, he says, look, this would be a foolish thing to do. It's just, it's folly. Look, I'm a slave and yet, even though I'm a slave, I've been given this position of prominence and if I engage in this activity, that that could all go away. It, it makes no sense. It's not a logical thing to do. And he gives a theological objection as well. Look, this, this would lose fellowship with God. It's a special type of folly. How could I commit this great wickedness, he calls it, this sin against God himself? Joseph rightly looks at the situation and assesses it rightly. He says, this is foolish. We see the same principles given throughout Scripture. Scripture tells us that there's a relational obligation that adultery or immorality is a violation of. 
covet your neighbor's wife. Don't commit, with, commit adultery with the wife of your neighbor. Leviticus 20.10. Scripture also tells us how foolish adultery and immorality are. In fact, if you want to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 is kind of interesting because it, it focuses not just on the theological, but on the, the practical. It's talking about adultery, but I think the principles apply to all types of immorality. Proverbs 6, verse 25, says, Don't desire her beauty in your heart. It's talking about someone you would commit adultery with. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. In other words, there's, there's going to be this physical appeal toward immorality. Don't be fooled. Verse 27 Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And of course the answer is no. So there's this physical alluring. Okay, I think this is going to bring me pleasure. I think it's going to bring me physical pleasure. And the writer of Proverbs is saying, look, don't be foolish. This is going to hurt. Even beyond, I wouldn't say beyond, but Even in addition to the theological reasons for not doing this, that that they're also practical, there there are some just real consequences where you're not even going to achieve the joy you think you're going to achieve. Verse 29, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. It's costly. Verse 30 says, people do not despise a thief. Verse 31, but if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. It's uh, adultery, immorality is, is costly from a physical standpoint. It's self-destructive, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. There's pain, shame, and disgrace, verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. I'm sorry, uh, he, verse 33. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. There's this public shame of our immorality. Verse 34, we see we incur the wrath of others. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. You commit adultery, you need to understand that the consequences are going to be severe. It's self-destructive. It's foolish. It's going to cost you. It can cost you jobs. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you your life. It can cost you your soul. It's foolish and Other passages talk about this as well. Proverbs 7. You can write down Proverbs 7, 1 through 27. Talk about the folly, the absolute foolishness of adultery. It talks about the person who's seduced is like an ox going to the slaughter. A stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, the person who commits adultery does not know that it will cost him his life. Scripture also tells us elsewhere about the, the loss of fellowship with God through adultery and immorality. Proverbs 2 says, You need to be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. There's loss of relationship with God. Joseph, by God's grace, sees things as they really are. He sees the, the folly that adultery would be. I want to read a little bit of an article from uh, the New York Times. So not, not a bastion of morality and uh, Christian thought, right? This is from December 2010. And the article was entitled, Modern Love. Modern Love, 
A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. And it's written by a woman who committed adultery and also had a, a husband who committed adultery on, on her. And, and she talks, kind of begins with this imagery of, of being in a hotel room, either to commit adultery or to flee from an adulterous uh, spouse and, and just the, the view from that hotel room is kind of how she begins the, the article. And then she says that she offered a friend who was considering having an affair this advice. She said, she writes, start, I suggested to her, by picturing yourself in the therapist's office with your betrayed husband after you've been found out and you will be found out. You will hear yourself saying you cheated because your needs weren't being met. The spark was gone. You're bored in your marriage. Someone else understands me better. One or another version of this excuse will cross your lips like some dark, knee-jerk, hallmark card sentiment. As the writer Paul Thoreau says in one of his travel logs, it is very easy to plant a bomb. It is very easy to plant a bomb in a trustful, peaceful place. She writes, and that is what the cheating spouse has done and then detonated it. Sooner or later, your illicit, once-beloved object of affection will become tawdry, wearying. You will come to long for simple, honest pleasures like making dinner with your sons or going out to the movies without having to to look over your, your shoulder. She offers in the article some encouragement and advice, encouraging people to stay in a marriage she says this as she concludes the article. I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives are at the ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-something years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? From where I stand now, she writes, it all looks like just a cheap hotel room, whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. And despite the things that seem so good about an affair. There is no view. There is no view from this room that is worth having. She's absolutely right. Again, this this isn't, she's not writing theologically. She's writing simply practically. But what we see as believers is, look, um, it's not just about adultery. It's about immorality. And why is immorality so so foolish? Because of all the consequences. And, And sometimes we don't think, rightly about the, all, all the consequences of what it will be to our lives and to the lives of the people we love when we pursue immorality. Joseph, by God's grace, does think about that. He says, I can't do it. It's foolish. I can't commit this great sin against God. Immorality rejects the joy of pursuing worship of God, and it pursues something that will not bring us pleasure. Here's the third thing. Immorality is a danger that must be actively resisted. Potiphar's wife doesn't take no for an answer. Verse 10 is kind of discouraging to me and yet also hopeful, right? 
You see, if it wasn't for verse 10, you could think, okay, well, maybe there's just like this, you know, one time at which you, Joseph or, or we have to face this decision of, as to whether or not to pursue immorality. And you get this one test, pass the one test, and, you know, two thumbs up, it's all over. That's not what happens here. It says that her methods, first of all, are are constant. It's, it's day after day. And then her, her methods are progressive. Hey, if you won't lie with me, maybe just kind of lie down next to me. And if you don't want to lie down next to me, why don't you just be beside me? She's trying to get Joseph to compromise, as one person put it. Maybe she believed if, if Joseph could not be stormed, perhaps he could be coaxed. But Joseph refuses. Joseph is, is very wise here. He refuses it says he, he will not listen to her. Day after day, he would not listen to her. And it seems that he also places uh, barriers. He won't lie beside her. He won't even be with her. When she does catch him unawares, again she says, lie with me, and he flees. He doesn't say, well, just for a minute, we'll just talk. He runs. He has a theological understanding of what's going on, as we've already seen, a practical understanding he sets boundaries. He sets boundaries. And, you know, I, I thought about mentioning some. I thought, okay, I'll encourage, you know, just some encouragements. Do this with your computer or do this with accountability or do, do this or do that. And, you know, I, I think each person needs before God to decide how, how best to pursue this. But I will say this. You have to understand the danger. You have to be aware of the danger. Joseph is. You have to be aware not just of the, of the danger of, of failure, but of the, da- of the continued danger that failure brings, the, the continued fruit that, that immorality brings in your life. I had a friend in college. This friend came to me one time, and, uh, you know, he said, he knew I was a believer, and, and, and he was a Christian as well. He says, Daniel, uh, something really bad has happened to me. I was at this place, and you were kind of clear, clearing some things out and throwing away. And I, I found this, this huge box full of, of, of magazines. And they, they, were, they were bad magazines, full of immorality. And, and um, I'm, I feel trapped. I, I cannot get rid of them. I, I, need, I need you to do this for me. We, we go to my uh, dorm, my, my apartment room there on, on campus, and just get rid of them for me. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that for you. And so the next day, I go over to his apartment. He told me where they were. And so I grab a trash bag. And just real quickly, I'm, I'm putting them in there. And uh, there were way more than I, than I thought. And so I had this big trash bag. I'm like, now what do I do with it? And so I, there's this dumpster at the end of the, the parking lot. And so I, I begin walking in this, and this, this bag, I feel like it's, it's going to break. And it's full, so full of these magazines. And so um, then uh, my friend... Uh, I see him on the other end of the parking lot, kind of a little bit closer to me, and he, he parks his car, and he, he gets out of his car, and he looks at me, and he realizes what I have in this, this, gro- this uh, big trash bag. And he, he yells out, he said, I didn't mean today. And he begins to run at me. And I look at him, and I look at the other end of the parking lot, I see the dumpster, and so I start running. And so I am running through a parking lot, with a bag that is breaking, 
And I'm seeing people that I know, and I'm just picturing what's going to happen when this bag breaks and these magazines go all over the parking lot. And this guy has been, I mean, what is going to happen here? So I'm just running as fast as I can. I get to the dumpster, I throw it in, and I press the button where everything compacts. And my friend gets to the, to the dumpster and he says, oh, oh, thanks. I couldn't have done that. Had such a hold on him. Brothers and sisters, someday the bag's going to break and everything's going to be revealed in your life. The danger of immorality, the draw of it is, is so, so very great. And we need to recognize the danger and bring people around us and say, look, I, I, can't, you know, I can't get into this. I can't get out of this on my own. I, I need others to help me. I need to set boundaries. I need to understand that these things are dangerous because I want to preserve my soul. Help me. Help me. There's a broader theme here, obviously. If you think about Jesus' words regarding amputation, he's talking about lust in Matthew 5, and he says, you, You've heard it's, that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. What's Jesus' point? Look, whatever it takes to pursue morality is worth it. Whatever it takes to pursue worship of God is worth it. Do it. I don't want to encourage legalism, but I would encourage you to ask this question. How can I worship God and avoid the danger of immorality? And commit to God to do what's necessary. And here's the fourth thing. Purity is only possible because of God's presence with us. The chapter ends the way it begins. Pursuing purity doesn't mean that we won't face any consequences. Joseph obviously here is in, in, in danger because of what his master does. His master, it's kind of ambiguous. It says his anger was kindled, but he doesn't have Joseph executed, which he could have. And he puts him in prison. And then, again, it ends the same way it begins. What happened? It says, the Lord was with Joseph. He's, he's with him. He continues to be with him. And so Joseph may lose his position, but he maintains his soul. He continues in his relationship with God. He's with Joseph. He shows him steadfast love. That's covenant faithfulness. And it's this beautiful picture. Just as Joseph didn't violate his, his sexual purity, God can, and, and, and purity is a, is a picture of our covenant relationship with God. God continues in this steadfast, faithful relationship with Joseph. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The same thing that happens in prison has happened before. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This purity that Joseph exhibits here is possible only because of God's presence with him. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is that, that purity, worship of God, is only possible because of God's presence with you. More specifically, because of your union with Jesus Christ. It, it's a beautiful picture, right? Here's Judah in Genesis 38 who commits sexual immorality. And here's this redeemer, Joseph, in Genesis 39. Because of God's presence with him, he, he's able to maintain purity. And this morning, 
some of us may be struggling, look, I haven't pursued God in this area the way that I need to. And, and there may be sorrow and, and heartache and despair. And, and here's the good news. You have a Redeemer who has been successful in the areas that you have failed. There is no person in here who has pursued purity the way in worship of God, the way that God has called them to. The good news is you have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ who has achieved perfect obedience in this area. And now, by faith in Jesus Christ, you can receive his righteousness. Colossians chapter 3 says this, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's talking about this union that we have with our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And now God looks at, at us and sees Jesus. It says, When Jesus, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So I put all those things to death in Jesus Christ, and I'm united with him, and I pursue purity by, by Jesus working within me. And now God doesn't see my failures in immorality when he looks at me. He sees Jesus in his righteousness, and I receive salvation. In Genesis 38, you have Judah failing in Genesis Genesis 39, you have Joseph succeeding. And here's the amazing thing. Because of Joseph's, this this Redeemer's success, he finds favor with Pharaoh. And he delivers his brothers. His brother Judah, who fails in his sexual immorality, is saved by his brother, a Redeemer, who had success. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture And the amazing thing is that all of us, by God's grace, can receive, receive this this righteousness. God looks at us and doesn't see our failure. And this is, I want to encourage you with this, this, this so strongly because it's so hard to believe. But you've proclaimed it this morning in the Lord's Supper. You've proclaimed it in what you've sung. We see it in the text. God looks at us and sees Jesus' righteousness through our faith in him. He's our redeemer. He's our salvation. He's our deliverer. He's the one we continue to pursue in the joy of worship. I'm going to ask you to to stand with me as we pray and close our our service together. Let, Let me pray and ask for God's continued grace in our lives in this, in this area. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we are in him through faith in him. We thank you that we have his righteousness and a righteous alien to ourselves. And we thank you that you give us the ability to continue to pursue you and worship in this area and have the joy of obedience. Help us, Father, we pray. Give us victory in this area in your son, Jesus. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And God's people said with joy, amen. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.